0: listening to power and volume a podcast where i interview performers about how they do what they do i'm your host adam mcintyre and today's guest is fran capitanelli you may know him from playing with the tom collins butch walker his solo album cave talk and more recently the covers album turned podcast totally into the sound i like that hey fran i like that Welcome over, man. Hey, Adam. Thanks w- for having me. Well, uh, uh, listeners, we've actually already been chatting for a few minutes, so we cheated <laughs> <But> <laughs> uh, on you. Uh, but uh, is th- is that intro about right, friend? That sounds pretty pretty good. I
1: I felt very uplifted while it was going on. We all do.
0: Um, and I I know that there's a bunch of things that I missed in that, but I wanted to give like kind of some bullet points. But I think that it's it would be really interesting to tackle tits just right out of the gate, yeah, um, because that is your your latest project, totally into the sound. Can you tell me how the idea for the covers record got going and and kind of how it progressed into being what it is, which is a podcast slash video podcast?
1: Well, I come from a family of crazy ideas. People that come up with crazy ideas and then see them through. (laughs) The seeing them through part is the unusual part. I know. Well, there were many times while I was making that record, because it took a few years, um, where I was like, am I really seeing that? What do I do now? There's no turning back. Um, I'm already so well into the project that I just kind of have to finish it. I purposely didn't tell a lot of people that I was doing it in case I turned back and then they wouldn't have to well what happened with the Bee Gees thing yeah so there was a few years there that seemed like an eternity where I was kind of like keeping everything close to my vest
0: So people hey what are you working on surely you're working on something and I
1: would just say well it's something it's like a mix of Van Halen meets the Bee Gees and they'd be like oh whoa yeah um The Bee Gees is a uh, sensitive subject. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I think I've turned a lot of people away just
0: by (laughs) having them as a part of my thing. Just because they're polarizing? Yeah. So, and the the polarizing thing about them, I'm assuming, is the fact that they got so huge doing disco. Yeah. Like, they made kind of the disco record, but they had a long history before that of inspiring, you know, Jeff Lynne. Yeah. You know, they they uh, were inspired by the Beatles. They were in a totally different,
1: They yeah, the first handful of years, they sounded a little like the Beatles. They sounded like the Kinks. They kind of sounded like whatever the flavor of the month was. Yeah. And then they settled into their thing, which was kind of like a almost ballads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the disco thing hit and they found themselves in in the middle of, of a movement. But when I was a kid, um, my father was a songwriter and, um, we used to go to criteria studios in Miami. So this was in the mid to late seventies when the Bee Gees, you know, were monopolizing criteria studios and that's where they made that record. So as a kid, before I even really got into music, I was into the Bee Gees. I mean, I I fell for the whole for that whole thing. I was just at the the right age that when I heard Sergeant Pepper's by the Bee Gees, I didn't know the Beatles, Sergeant right. Pepper's, and I was just like, these guys are amazing.
0: <laughs> it's so adventurous, you know. So it's such lofty goals for for that record and and movie.
1: Oh, God, I made my dad take me to that movie. We were the only two people in the theater. (laughs) And uh, I could tell when I was eight years old that that movie is just terrible. I I watched it again while I was making the record, and I was just like, yeah, it doesn't matter uh, how much pot you smoke. It's not going to make this movie any better.
0: I had that kind of experience with the movie Tommy. Yeah. Where like, I loved it when I was a kid and I don't know that you could pay me to watch it right now. <laughs> like it's, I know that it's bad and it's like, it's, I, I'm i pretty sure it's the same guy that did like Excalibur. Wow. And Zardoz. I love Excalibur. <laughs> right. What a, what a resume. But at, there was a time in the seventies where people would make like really outlandish kind of. I don't know, tongue-in-cheek, like, garbage movie entertainment. And it would be really great in a way. And then maybe not exactly have the staying power of some of its contemporaries.
1: Well, the staying power relied on cocaine. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was it.
1: Uh, I've already referenced two drugs. I don't know if I'm going to be banned.
0: <laughs> no, there's, I mean... We're in a recording studio where there's boobs on the wall and, uh, you know, definitely weed around, which we are not doing right now, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> you're <So> fine. <laughs> I was,
1: um, I was working a day job that was keeping me very busy and making me get up very early every day for about 10 years. I got up at four thirty in the morning. Um, gross. I know it was, it was horrible. I, And at some point in there, I was like, well, I could make a record while I'm in this routine of my my work routine. And at least uh, so many people would come into the coffee shop that I co-owned and worked at that were old musician friends. And I would always feel like, oh, God, I'm not in the game. And uh, it would be really cool to have an album at least for when people stop by, here's the album I yeah. just I just finished,
0: and I definitely was one of those people that very interested, like I came by there to see if I could buy a copy off of you, and it was sitting on the table, yeah, like with the uh the little coffee cosies and shit like that the merch, yeah, yeah, and I enjoyed it. I rode around listening to it in the van for maybe a year, wow. That yeah, makes I me mean, feel good. I, you put a lot of work into it. I think it's really
1: good. It is really good. I mean, the as far as you know, the musically I got to the point where that I wanted to get it to where um I played everything and it was on that kind of like 80s metal level mm-hmm. um and the you know, when people heard it after it was done, they were expecting to hear just ramped up versions of the v- BG songs but it's really just it's my interpretations of them as if I was in the room with them right. writing that There album. was
0: songwriting involved with with these rearrangements. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, it felt like you picked up a project and were handed some lyrics to use. Make make this into a song, yeah. Right. Right. Make this into another song. Ignore what came before. And uh, in case we glossed over it, uh, it's very much like almost like a Van Halen style reimagining of Bee Gees songs. Yeah. Which what was the the producer that they were using when they first started was the like the big Yacht Rock guy. So Van Halen the- stuff definitely has like a sheen on it oh, to yeah. begin with. Ted, Ted Templeman. Ted Yes. Yeah. And then you add, you know, uh, some pretty glossy, uh, hammered into shape Bee Gees lyrics on top of it. How could we go wrong?
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny because, you know, I started that making videos for YouTube when I put the record out. And um, as I've gotten further in and covering other topics, I'll see my subscribers like go. You know I'm constantly checking do I did I get any subscribers today? And then I'll look and I say, oh no, it went down one. That means somebody went back to one of the earlier videos and saw, you know, a whole video on the Bee Gees and was like, the Bee Gees? <laughs> I can't support this. I can't back this
0: guy. I don't know that that's it. I could I could I be mean, wrong. I I love to uh assign all sorts of meanings to things like that. Yeah. But in reality, it's so-and-so canceled their YouTube account or they got banned. And so they no no longer count as one of your subscribers. Or they decided that they were subscribed to 300 damn channels and decided to unsubscribe from all of them. And you're sitting here thinking that it's about the Bee Gees. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I know how to take things personally. (laughs) Like that's my whole... Thing this year is figure out all of the ways in which I take things personally and then try to like get real about it so <laughs> I'm just yeah. assuming because like that's a story that I tell myself and then my girlfriend Amber will be like don't you think it might be more like this
1: I had a <laughs> oh, situation <that's> entirely possible
0: <laughs> uh, yesterday I was looking
1: at my comments and um, I did a video on my uncle who played with paul mccartney and john lennon and he was a session guy that was very understated uh he played very minimalistically and so one of the comments that i got uh yesterday it said terrific blank filler uh (laughs) i guess it was two days ago and i and i took about a half a day to kind of keep looking at it and like terrific blank filler what does that mean I I, I want to, you know. It seems like I, I'm taking this negatively. Like mm-hmm. you're saying, my content is just blank filler, and um, this thing that's
0: hugely personal to me, right, is filler to you.
1: So after about a day, I I, I hit the button that you tried to not hit, which is block block them from your channel. They can no longer leave any comments. So I did that, and then um, yesterday I was I was actually on a bike ride and it hit me they're talking about my uncle he filled in the blanks and i was like oh shit i banned someone that was (laughs) on my side and i had to try and figure out who it was
0: okay so it's very very easy to hurt my feelings yes with just like the dumbest shit and it is really it's really good to hear somebody else suffering from a similar issue. You start
1: reading into things. Oh, and oh uh, it becomes this huge thing in your head and really it was someone just they just left out the word
0: he was. Did you get bullied when you're in school? Um I got bullied constantly. It's a it's a part of the trauma that I built my personality on. Yeah, we
1: moved a lot. So I don't know if I got bullied, but I was always starting over in a new school where I had to, you know, figure out who was on my side Who's and safe uh and who was against me and how to
0: rise to the top of everyone and then we would move again. So after after digging the Bee Gees as a child, like a pre-musician child, how does that kind of start to turn into playing an instrument? Um, It starts by forgetting about
1: the Bee Gees for a second. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, like, like any of us, like forgetting about the monkeys, you know, or whatever other like childhood yeah. thing that we had that like. It
1: really was a, the whole Bee Gees thing was kind of a renaissance in my adult years where nice. I was like, man, I, I used to like them and I think I still do like them. Um
0: I deserve to be able to say that I like them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I get it. But my brothers um and sisters were all musicians. So, and they're all older. So, I remember my brother coming home with like the first uh wave of mini moogs. Mm. And he wasn't even a keyboard player. He just loved Yes so much. He bought this synthesizer so there was a synthesizer there was a drum set there was plenty of guitars somebody was always recording a song my dad was always going in the studio and i kind of grabbed my brother's guitar one day and started noodling around i actually was playing the drums first um
0: i sometimes say that all kids are drummers yeah you know because all drummers have that story of like, well, I was in the kitchen with my mom's pots and pans, yeah, banging on them. I'm like, look, we all have that story, but like, where where does the actual instrument come into play? Like, so did you you actually have a drum kit when you were a kid? Well, my my brother was a
1: drummer. He went to school for drums, um, studied under Joe Picaro, mm. and um, he had this gig with the Coasters in the eighties who were doing nightclubs and I would set up and tear down his drums in the house so he could go to the gig. And when he got back so that he could teach lessons. So yeah. I was always tearing down the drums, setting them back up. And then when I would set them up, I would start playing. But my family traveled a lot um, every summer. My dad had a Christian ministry. We would go church to church on tour every summer for when i was 11 till i was 19 and every summer i would lose my chops so halfway through there i was like okay the guitar i can take it with me i can still play the drums when i get back home yeah but i need something to be able to take with
0: me on tour so your at your childhood is essentially like there's some things here that are constants for a lot of us like the house that we grew up in you know the people that we're with for you that's kind of changing what's not changing is the fact that there's instruments around right so i i mean i i get it like here's here's something i can hold on to here's something i can take with me through moves different phases of my life so what was your what was the guitar that you fall in love with um well, my first real guitar was a Kramer Beretta.
1: Wow. So right when the Berettas came out and you had Eddie in the ad with the Pep Boys yeah. shirt on, uh, or No Bozos, I guess it was, uh, I was like, that's the guitar. And the money that I, I made a little bit of money on these summer tours with my parents, I would get back at the end of the summer and I would buy an amp. One summer I bought the Seymour Duncan convertible. uh Jeff Beck Combo, uh-huh. uh, another summer I got a different amp, I got a Mesa Boogie. So, But to answer your question, the Kramer Beretta was the first one that I got. I wish I still had it, but it, of course I don't.
0: Have you looked those up on eBay and uh, tried to grab one like I did with my first guitar recently?
1: Um, I thought about it, but what I did instead was I bought a Nash uh 81 it's got the the floyd rose on it and they're just built so much better
0: nash makes great guitars
1: that first kramer beretta it it couldn't stay in tune (laughs) the tremolo was just a high learning curve for a 13 year old who hadn't really had a regular guitar
0: no it's too a a floyd rose is too much um for a 13 year old for sure
1: but, you are you know, it was 1984. Yeah. How could I not have a Floyd Rose? What are
0: you doing without a Floyd Rose? I don't even know
1: why. You know, I, I have two guitars with Floyd Rose on them now. And I don't even know. I love those guitars. But I, I never use that, the tremolo, right. barely ever. Uh, so you got an extra 10
0: pounds on the guitar just to go
1: once right.
0: a, a year. <laughs> And who knows if it's going to do its job of like when you like slam your hand down on the whammy bar and do that dive bomb, when you bring it back up, it's supposed to come back up in tune. Yeah. But if only if you know 100% what you're doing and the equipment 100% cooperates. Exactly. So who knows? I'm assuming that Nash does a better job of doing that same thing.
1: Those guitars are just in tune. You know, you could not tune it for a year and pick it up. And it's still right there. Dive Bomb, still in tune, everything.
0: That's great. So uh, you you start playing on this Kramer. Uh, and you're in a musical family. So are you having to go outside of the house and take lessons? Or is this le- an in-house thing? Or are uh, you just kind of doing like I did and just picking shit up on your own?
1: Um, a, little, a little bit of everything. My brothers were teaching me stuff. Um, or I would hear my brother's... My oldest brother, Ronnie, he was uh, the guitar player, and he was a practicer, still mm-hmm. is, just loves to get a, an eight-hour day of practicing in. Um, and I would hear what he was practicing. I would try and copy it in in the, another room. And then, of course, there there were some guitar lessons. Um, but really, it was just me trying to learn stuff off the record.
0: Is your brother hearing you? Practicing what he's practicing when he stops and come over and like, hey, yeah, they're like ninety percent right on that. Let me show you the right way.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's that and there's, um, I was getting, I was getting good quick, um, and it was upsetting him. Uh, right. Uh,
0: well, he didn't have an older brother to be. Him.
1: <laughs> right.
0: That's how it works. Standing it, on the shoulders of giants. It's
1: still kind of a thing, like. Well, when I was 14 or 15, my dad had a studio and he would bring, you know, we would, I would get a session date every now and then. And my brother would be like, <laughs> you're giving the 14 year old kid the session, se- session date over yeah. the 28 year old guy that's been practicing eight hours a day?
0: Yeah, sometimes. That's just how it fucking works. Yeah. Or it should be. Good dad. Um, so when is your first gig? Like, how does that happen? Um, my first gig was at,
1: in front of the school library at Palm Springs High during the school day. Uh, we played for both lunches. Uh, I was playing my Kramer Beretta. And this at, was
0: not unusual to have a band set up there.
1: Um, kind of, it was kind of unusual. We, uh, we were, we were, uh. We were a little bit ahead of the game. I hadn't seen any other bands play in front of the library during the school day. I broke a string on the first note uh, of wow. the first lunch or our first set. And, you know, when you break a string on a Kramer Beretta, that yes. takes about a half hour to get all your tools together and restring it. So
0: and by the way listeners like just playing with five strings after one breaks on a Floyd Rose that's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, it sends it wildly out of tune. But yeah that was my first gig at, at in front of the Palm Springs High Library. That's where I went to school.
0: So you're what do you remember about that first set
1: ever? Um so the band was kind of a um a Duran Duran kind of a thing. Uh, we all had the ice cream cone heads with the bleached hair and the uh, Gordon Gartrell shirts. Uh, Y'all were new romantics? Yep, yeah, pretty much. And I remember the girls after we played, even though I broke a string and barely played through the whole set. I was like, uh, you know, I didn't have my license yet, but... I had some opportunities to go on some dates and I just needed to get my license. So that, that was what came of of that first gig was like, Oh, this actually works.
0: (laughs) I have not really found that to be the case, but I, there's something about like that being a, a kid and being on stage and shit going wrong. And just like that hot, (laughs) <laughs> like well the moment's happening but now i wish it would end <laughs> like yeah, this oh, yeah. thing that i've been looking forward to that seemed larger than life like the genie granted my wish in the most evil way possible and now this gig is a nightmare and then girls want to come up to me afterward yeah like what a <laughs> what a what a hot and cold first experience
1: the first time getting the pre-show nerves and you just feel like you're in the cage that you can't get out of until you play that first note. And there's all these things that you have to do to get to the point where you're standing up there playing that first note. That really, that, I still go through that. Like, uh, I played a gig last week and I was nervous all the, you know, for two days leading up to the first note that was played and then I was fine. at
0: At the Earl? Yeah. So... I, I don't think that we've really talked about like the pre-show experience on this podcast at all, which is weird. Um, but so I wanted to talk to you a, a little bit about that. So you said that before a show for a couple of days, you're nervous. It's, are, are you, and here's kind of the, the, one of the gists, like something that I kind of try to remind myself, am I nervous or am I excited? because to your nervous system it's the same thing but to your brain it's two different two different states can you tell me about like just kind of i'm not going to i'm not going to interrupt and tell you that you're wrong <laughs> while you're explaining it i just want to know like kind of what what happens in those 48 hours before you play your first note um you're
1: just uh, i start to wonder how do i even know how to play the guitar. How am I gonna remember all this stuff when I get up there? Uh, how? Because when you get up and play, it's all kind of just happening. You can't really think about it. I'm gonna play this chord now and this chord. You know, It's just your muscle memory is doing it for you, right. especially if you're singing. You really have to detach from what you're playing on the guitar and think about the singing part. So you've got these two instruments that you're playing and. How do I know how to do these two things at the same time? What if I forget everything? Um, this last gig I played was with Anna Kramer and Easy Now. And the first song of the set was the one I was the most comfortable with. I was like, okay, good first song. I that's a lock. I won't be making any mistakes. Yeah. And of course, I played a series of chords two frets off from where I was supposed to. Uh, And it made this loud clanging. (laughs) It was on the B-Bender. And I was like, well, there you go. Yeah. The the one that I was the least fearful of was the one I chowdered the most. (laughs) Uh, The rest of the show went off without a hitch. Yeah.
0: Then you can kind of be in the moment. Yeah. After that. That um, Wurlitzer right there, Bessie, is Anna Kramer's uh old Wurlitzer. Oh. Um, she has she has been such a, a great supporter and friend of of me in the studio. And it's it's really great to see you playing with her.
1: Are you gonna do more shows with her? I don't know. It was kind of like um it was for the album release, so they wanted a little extra right uh reinforcement. Let's
0: polish this up.
1: But you know, when you get a I'm kind of loud, Adam. Sure, you know that's one of those things that um, maybe you don't bargain for. Uh, we're gonna get this guy who can like really handle some of these the heavy lifting on the guitar parts, but it's so loud. Yeah, you can't hear
0: anything else. Right. Um, so Circumstances have kind of. They forced might not me out want me. Um, I, so like I, this is generally what I use now, this little, uh, I think it's about a 30 watt acorn and I will go up to the sound guy and tell them like, look, man, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Like if I need to face this into a corner, point it at the wall, put one of those little baffles in front of it, just let me know what I can do. I just want us to sound good. And before that it was, I want to sound good. (laughs) <laughs> right. And I've just really found that people just don't give a shit about like whether or not I sound good. They want to know whether or not they're gonna sound good when I play with them. What amp are you using? Uh Vox AC 30. Oh fuck. Yeah. Those not only sound great, and y'all notice we both said 30 watts. Vox AC 30s are fucking loud, right? Yeah. And you have to
1: like I, I had barely had it on, you know. Of course, that whole story. Like, it's not even on one. Right. And yeah. it's killing
0: everybody. Yeah, I can't sound like Brian May on this thing. You won't let <laughs> me turn it up past 1.25. Um, Those but, things are great, though. So toneful. And yeah, I mean, they're class A. They've got kind of a lot of headroom. I love that amp. Yeah. I, I was dreaming about this
1: exact amp. It's the one that has, it's a head and cabinet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it's got this beautiful Tolex. I don't know what the name of it is, but it's like a sandy colored, uh, mesh Tolex. And I've been looking at it online, like, ah, I got to get this guitar, this amp. And I have this other amp that I probably could trade for that. Um, But it's just, you know, you got to take your amp around and find where the amp is in a store and find someone to to trade it. I literally got a call within a couple days from Josh Weaver, Mm -hmm. who was like, hey, I got this Vox AC30, and I'm looking to trade it for an amp that's like the one that I know you have. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And he brought it over in a couple hours. I was like. Did that just happen? Yeah. We, we were both very pleased with with our even-steven trade. Wow. But I was just like, wow, if only life could just be that easy where you see, you know, oh, I want this thing. I could trade this for it.
0: Boom. It just gets brought to you.
1: Hey, I've got one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's fucking great. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, So I'm not sure whether to move on to like, okay, so you've played a show. And you've seen that it gets girls uh, interested in you. <laughs> um, so what are you working on as a teenager, as a guitarist? Like, kind of what are you most concerned about when you're getting on stage? Like, what are you thinking about, about your, your playing or about yourself? Um, My brother, since he was such a
1: practicer, he was always saying to me, if you do this X amount, two hours a day or whatever it was uh, talking to me when I was 13. By the time you're 18, you're going to be a monster. You're going to be as good as whoever. So that was really, I was practicing a lot in those years trying to be uh, Eddie Van Halen. Right. I had his guitar. I was learning, you know, song by song and trying to get the solos down At some point um, in 1987, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, who kind of turned me on to a lot of great music, um, and he was a couple years older, he went to this summer session in Hollywood at the Musician's Institute, and he got an apartment in Hollywood. His parents, you know, hooked him up. And I would go, so I was still in high school, so I would go up and visit him every weekend and we would go to shows. We'd go see the Chili Peppers and Jane's Addiction, Guns N' Roses, and many others that you wouldn't know the name of.
0: That's a wide variety of guitarists already. Yeah. Like that's a great variety of of influences for you to like have permeating your brain.
1: That was like a turning point where I went from just, concentrating on Van Halen to, so uh, I asked my dad if I could, can I go to this summer session? And it was one of the years where his music ministry wasn't gonna be on tour. Um, And he went for it. He he told me that if I got all straight A's that he would hook me up and I would go to this same summer class for guitar. Um, So I lived in Hollywood when I was 17 and had my own apartment, and it was just for three or four months, but...
0: That's still unbelievable.
1: That, like, totally uh, changed everything.
0: So who, who was... All right, so when I was younger, I would kind of harp on to other guitarists that were my age, like, you're really good at sounding like this one guitarist. However, you kind of start to find your own style when you start combining that all of the stuff that you listen to into kind of one one mishmash and start making choices on what you want to sound like and that you kind of want to maybe obscure some of your influences. So who were you adding to the mix starting with that summer? Um, well, definitely the Chili Peppers and Jane's Addiction.
1: Hillel. Uh, Hillel was still alive. Yeah, he was such a good guitarist. I lived and I only found this out, in the past handful of years that I lived like a block away from where he lived and from where the other guys lived. Um, But um, up till that point, you know, every time it would be the spotlight on me and I would be doing a solo fingers right to the fretboard, start tapping. And um, after that summer, it was all the SST bands, Mike Watt, you know, uh, Black Flag, Bad Brains, um, you know, Minutemen had just ended, but Firehose had just started up. So I was going to a lot of Firehose shows, Meat Puppets. So that's kind of the, where everything kind of changed.
0: And so that sounds like you, uh, so I'm starting to play guitar at that time. Like that's when I start coming into the game. And when I enter the scene, finger tapping, two hands on the fretboard, is starting to become like a eh, "who do you think you are" kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, like let's let's you know pluck with your one hand and you know fret with the other, and just make shit happen that way. So it kind of sounds like that phase is starting to happen for you. Like the new influences and new new peers are not finger tapping so much. So yeah. you're that's interesting that you're now in a position where like when you're soloing on guitar, two hands aren't hitting the fretboard anymore. No. In this one way, you're kind of behind some other folks your age. So what are you, what are you kind of thinking about as you do that, as you kind of make that transition? You mean when I was 17? Yeah. When you're 17 and now it's like, well, pick a solo. Um, You know, my, being uh, in
1: awe of, of Eddie Van Halen and his virtuosity, it switched over to Flea. Yeah. Um, and I was really in awe of what he was doing on the bass. So yeah. I was trying to incorporate that onto the guitar, which was a lot of fun and got me nowhere.
0: But still,
1: (laughs) but it it really helped my the rhythm, uh, my rhythm playing and and my right and left hand working together.
0: Um, so Flea is combining a few different things, but the most notable new thing is that he is slapping. Yeah, he's slapping and popping with his right hand, and so you're starting to do that on guitar. Yeah. Um, so that's going to make for some, again, you're not using a pick and you're doing something really interesting and kind of, uh, atypical to like the, you know, the Yardbirds guitarists that I grew up imitating. So, uh, I would be fascinated to hear like you kind of fleeing it up on guitar. What guitar are you playing at this point?
1: At that point I got a, I got a strat. So the summer of 87, uh, The summer I was in Hollywood, I started going around to all the guitar stores, um, and there was a shop in Hollywood called Voltage Guitars, Mm. and they had a Strat there that I was in love with, um, and I picked up that Strat during that summer. I remember Robin Crosby was in the store when I was buying that guitar, and I was like, oh, my God, there's Robin Crosby. (laughs) And he was a sight, let me tell you. Man, he just looked like he just walked off the stage of the Forum right into that guitar
0: store. <laughs> you got to look the part, man. <laughs> Oof. Um, so, uh, so then you're working on some new stuff, not only like not finger tapping, but also slapping and popping on the guitar.
1: My roommates that summer were uh, another, some friends of mine from Palm Springs High, That were older than me, and they kind of went through, like, back then you had the tape case, where you had a a little suitcase with, like, 30 cassette tapes in it. Yes. And they went through my cassette tapes, and they were like, "Ah, let's get rid of this. Wow. Get, no, uh, Van Halen, gone. King Crimson, gone. Wow, they, like, Uh,
0: queer-eyed your suitcase of... Exactly.
1: uh, ...of cassettes. And... um. I guess stevie ray was was really uh in infiltrating my my mind at that point too, so that was all
0: going on, so he was my first like really big influence, and who I'm talking about with like so I'm coming up at the same time and same age is remember that crop of like young white blues guitarists that wanted to be Stevie Ray Vaughn yeah. I found myself wanting to set myself apart from them by like, I realized my influence is very easy to name and it's just one guy. So what can I do to kind of start setting myself apart from the Kenny Wayne Shepherds of the world? But that's, I mean, when you get back to it though, Stevie Ray didn't do anything wrong. Like he didn't, he didn't want this crop of teenage blues guitarists to ape everything he did. It's like
1: the same thing with the tapping. Yeah, you know, it got to a point where everybody else started trying to do it, and yeah. they they ruined it. Everybody right. else started trying to be Stevie Ray, like
0: which- the people that didn't like Jimi Hendrix because of all the people that he influenced. You know, that came along after him, like the the hair metal guitarists, all saying that you know, Jimi Hendrix is my favorite guy. Well, then I'm not going to listen to that guy. He sounds like an asshole. <laughs> It's not his fault. It's not his fault. All of this is beautiful, soulful playing. Same with Stevie Ray. I mean, Stevie Ray, it's amazing that he broke through at that time playing blues. So weird. In 1985. What a strange time to break through playing the blues. You know, it's crazy. It's dead. It's in the middle of being dead. And then this guy comes along and resurrects it. Did you get to see him live?
1: I did. I saw him twice. I saw him once in San Diego at an open-air amphitheater and it was just it was right after he got sober oh and it big was difference. it was amazing it was just i couldn't even grasp yeah like what he's doing is so simple but he makes it sound so effortlessly perfect there's never i mean i can't play one song all the way through and not make 10 mistakes and he just was just like there was never a wrong note everything yeah. was Spot on, and yeah, wow.
0: probably would have been interesting to hear him play with Miles Davis and just like, well, there's no such thing as mistakes, those don't exist here. <laughs> um, so how do other instruments? I understand that you're you have grown up in a house where there's always instruments around, and you have drums way back there in your past as kind of. Not your mother instrument, but like your first sure. thing that you became familiar with. How do the other instruments start creeping their way back in? Um just because,
1: you know, you can do it. Um like I started playing drums again because I was so into the chili peppers and you know, playing funky drums yeah. is just the funny funnest thing in the
0: world. I love laying down a funk groove and just staying with that for half an hour. Yeah, it's it's just so meditative. Yeah, and obviously Chad Smith is fantastic drummer, he so is. not a guy not a bad guy to ape. Um, so at at this point, like you're just into like whatever the new Chili Peppers record is at the time. Like um, I was very
1: into them. Uplift I
0: mean, Mofo. They were. Uh, they
1: they were the center of my life until you know
0: 1991.
1: Right. Because uh, I had started seeing them in 86. Um, the first Chili Peppers show I saw was at UCLA Ackerman Hall and Guns N' Roses opened up. Whoa. For, it was Guns N' Roses and then the Dickies and then the Chili Peppers. What
0: an unusual lineup. Yeah. Are the Chili Peppers doing the body paint and blacklight at this point?
1: They hadn't gotten to that that point yet, um, unless they had done it before and then dropped it. Right. And then um, because there was definitely a, a few years of them playing before I I came around and started seeing their shows, but um, but I, I you know there was a base around, so I would get home from one of those shows and be like, man, I got I, I want to. Trying to figure out how to play that bass line right. that, that he was playing. Or the drums, you know, we're still set up. I want to play along with Freaky Stiley. Um once um they got out of my reach where I couldn't go see them at a show, at a club anymore, I I was I was out.
0: Once they belong to everybody and not you anymore, that does it changes things. Yeah, I was out of the game. Um I know that like for me being able to go see the Flaming Lips with 200 people and talk to all of the band members after shows that was what it was like to be a fan for me. And then at a certain point you go to a Flaming Lips show talking to Wayne afterward is not an option. There's several thousand people there. Yeah. It's it's not the same experience and it's not like oh they're not good anymore. But they're not mine anymore in the same yeah. way. Yeah, that's tough. That's fucking weird. So, uh, Chili Peppers start playing stadiums, and John Fruscianti comes in and fully replaces Hillel, uh, starting with part of the way through Mother's Milk. So, you're cashing out right before blood sugar sex magic hits.
1: No, I was still in them, into them. For that, I saw them on that tour. Uh, it was the Chili Peppers with Nirvana opening up and Pearl Jam was before them. That was the first time I heard of Pearl Jam. And then it was like two weeks before they became huge. Right. Um, and I was seeing Nirvana and I was kind of like, I don't know about all this hype on this this band Nirvana. I don't know about right. that. But once I saw that show... I was like, okay, I'm sorry, everyone. I get it. Yeah. This guy's amazing. These guys are, you know, they were just so good and so simple.
0: Well, there was, the whole thing is power and, and, and mastering that power, writing that power, because you take a look at Kurt's lyrics and it's like, well, you know, on one level, anybody could have written that, but Anybody didn't write that. Kurt wrote it, which is one of the definitions of genius, which is a term I don't love to throw around. But genius is one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, God, anybody could have come up with that idea. It's so simple. Right. But no one had come up with it. And in Kurt's case, no one had delivered this to you in exactly this way before. Several bands got real close to delivering that to you, and all he did was take, like, the most obvious way that he saw to regurgitate those influences back to people and all of a sudden this incredibly simple thing with so much power behind it, there's waves and waves and waves of understanding to what the lyrics mean, you know, like so much more is implied than simply what the lyric says. This weird other magical thing happens with Nirvana. And if you haven't seen, was it, live it um it's a it's a Seattle show. It it's just like the, became the widely available paramount. If you have been on the fence about Nirvana, check that out. To me, that's what's going on. It's not it's not the chorus that's all over Nevermind, you know, it's not them being role-less yet. Uh, or they have no growl on <laughs> bleach, which a lot of, you know, early fans still say is their best one. I liked in utero the best, but by that yeah. point, there's so many eyes on them. Yeah. You know, how could they possibly tell what's good about themselves anymore? And I, I, you know, having read Mark Lanigan's books, it's very obvious that he hated everything around being a rock star. He just liked the music part. Yeah, And once you see that band perform on stage and actually have fun and deliver like a crushing set, it's like, oh, all right, I get it.
1: The stage was set for them. They had this, you know, there was this groundswell of underground bands that couldn't play the arenas of the world, but they were starting to be, you know, Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, Alice in Chains. It was starting to become like that was what people were wanting to go out and see as far as i could tell from you know from my vantage point that's what was attainable you could go see one of these bands just tear it up and but there hadn't been somebody that broke through in that market yet and it was just kind of waiting there for nirvana and if you think about it smells like teen spirit if you would listen to that album and you before you knew how big it was going to be and and somebody said, "Okay, one of these songs on this album <laughs> is going to be the biggest song of all time." Yeah. Which one do you think it is? I probably I wouldn't have picked that one. It's kind of a, you know, it, a little outside the box.
0: I somehow got that record, and this is very unusual for Montgomery, Alabama. When I would if there was a new big record out, I'd have to order it even if it was a hit at the time. And I had seen a thing on PBS where these guys had a, a, like a new music show and they recommended this band and smells like teen spirit. Wasn't a a single yet. And I was sick of that record by the time smells like teen spirit was suddenly big on MTV. And for me, like the, one of the very first favorites on that record was smells like teen spirit, but it didn't, (laughs) it didn't have the staying power for me. I was already tired of it by the time I saw the video. Uh-huh. Like I had kind of worn it out. I thought that there were better songs on the record. I uh, you know, you know, who could have guessed that this is going to be like the most covered garage by garage bands song of this entire decade. Um I'm trying to remember. I had a I had a grunge band when I was like 15, 16 years old. Of course. And I think we did. Ugh, I think we did. Rape me. Uh, <laughs> woo! Uh, it not spells like Teen Spirit, but um, yeah. I mean, I I hear what you're saying. Like it's it's kind of a surprise. Kind of not like in hindsight, you know. Um. But so I'm I'm glad that they fucking blew you away when you finally saw them live, uh, what about Jane's addiction? Because I have, I completely missed ever seeing them live. I got into them after ritual came out and most people that know anything about them know that like the band broke up. Yeah. Like kind of coinciding with that release. And I've heard that they did some terrible, terrible shows at various points for various reasons. How, how was it seeing Jane's as a, as a local?
1: Uh, it, it was amazing. Uh, they, before I even saw them, they, let's see, I, I went to the same friend's house in, in Hollywood that he was living up there before. He was the inspiration of, for me to move up there. And he had the record, the first Jane's Addiction record, the live one. And he was like, this is the new thing yes and it, it had just come out uh just you know in local stores in hollywood and we listened to the record and i was like wow you know it's got it's got the things i like it's mm-hmm. kind of has like it's like the chili peppers but with led, more led zeppelin in it yeah and more um guitar solos yeah there's almost two two in every song right um so that night the same night that I heard the record for the first time, we went out to a show. It was the Chili Pepper show, and all those guys were at the show, and they looked like they were about to go on stage, but they weren't playing that night. Right. And they had these like crowds of people around them, and I was like, "Oh my God, that's the that's the band." We were just looking. I was just looking at the album. The sleeve. band
0: and their entourage are at this
1: show. And that, to see and be seen. I could already tell, yeah. These, you know, there's some something going on here. So, um, they were always just so good when I saw them. They they just blew,
0: they blew my mind. It's such a, I mean, and I mean this in a good way. Gosh, what a weird band. Yeah. It means you stand out. It means you're not exactly like all of the other shit. Impossible to lump them in with a scene comfortably. Yeah. Uh, It, and also the fact that they were such a, like a volatile combination of people at times. Yeah. I know things are a lot different now that everybody's fucking grown up. But back then I know that like, you know, shit was the band could break up on stage. Practically.
1: I can't even believe that those three bands Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, and Guns N' Roses, first of all, they all lived in about a mile radius of each other. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, the same as the British invasion. It's like, how did that all that? How did Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck all live within 10 miles of each other? Yeah. Um, but the fact that those bands, they were hardcore drug addicts. Yeah. How did they even function at all i think (laughs) i mean you're talking about major cocaine and and heroin addiction yeah uh and they were able to all
0: all three bands keep it going and i think some of it is age yeah and some of it is the fact that the priority actually is still music in spite of the fact that there's drugs there and that there's (laughs) there's so many of them so much at one time I know that when I was younger, it used to be like, watch me get fucked up and go on stage and not make any mistakes. Like I was very, that was a point of pride for me. Sure. And then I have to stop drinking and it gets very scary. Like, just watch me go on stage, please. (laughs) I'm not going to be fucked up, but I'm going to be way more scared than I've ever been. Yeah. And I I know that those guys were probably, at least it was their goal, maybe slightly less so with Guns N' Roses, but watch me go on stage and still, you know, fucking nail it. Yeah. In spite of all this shit that I'm And on. they did.
1: And that's kind of goes to the power of a band. Like, you know, when, you, when you've got a good band and you set up and start playing, it's such a natural, it's like, oh, wow. We're... We're good right off the bat. We haven't even started playing a song yet. And it already sounds like when you have that cover of a band, uh, that umbrella where basically anything you do is going to sound good because of the chemistry of the people involved, that is just such a gift that I didn't realize uh, goes away as you get older. You know, all good bands come from... You know, people that know each other from high school or shortly thereafter. And as you get older, there's less and less people to, you know, it's basically a, game, a band. A band is a gang. Yeah. They all have the, you know, way that they talk. I wish I knew everybody's nickname, all their slang and all their sayings. Yeah. Um, So as you get older, that's kind of drifts away. And
0: you're like, where are all my friends? Yeah. As you what get is- older, <laughs> it gets harder to make friends. Yeah. And harder to make those kinds of connections. That's so necessary to, uh, a band with the chemistry, like what you're talking about. Yeah. Like it, it can't, we're 45. It can't be like we grew up together. Cause we didn't. Yeah. Um, so what was that first band for you? that has that kind of just we're on we're on stage and we're fucking on and we're always good that I was in. Yeah. Tom Collins. So tell me about how the Tom Collins got started. Uh, I actually, I have a quick thing to tell you when I got to Atlanta and I finally, it took me a year or two to get a band together. Uh, that was something I felt like was presentable locally we went and played shows all over the Southeast because that was easier than getting a gig in Atlanta. Got good. Played a show at the star bar. And it was like Brian Malone's first time seeing us. And he's like, you guys like the Tom Collins, right? <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. You don't know Tom Collins. You guys would fucking love Tom Collins. You guys got to check them out. I think you guys might've even like, um, scaled back at that point.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but you got mentioned to me so many times right around the time I started playing here. I was like, I got to check this guy out. <laughs> so tell me about the Genesis of the Tom Collins. Um, let's see. Tom Collins started out as a band
1: called the X mimes and it was me and to the guys, Dan Dixon and Dave chase from drop Sonic. Um, and, um, that was like their side project, so it was my main band. I was writing the the, the songs for it, and but anytime there would be a, a conflict on a show date, well, Dropsonics got a, a gig that date, then I would feel like, oh yeah, I got to find my own guys. <laughs> yeah. So um, when I saw Kyle Spans playing Harvey Milk, I was like, well, that's got it that's gotta be the guy right there. I mean, that would probably just be a, a perfect musical match. He and I, and he, so I, I met him in Athens and asked him if he wanted to play a gig at the star bar that I had booked, but it really, I didn't have anything booked. I had to the next day get on the phone and I need a gig. Yeah. Um, And through him, I met uh, Craig McQuiston uh, the bass player, it started out, Tom Collins was David Barbie was playing bass. And, but that was another thing where he was so busy, you know, he's got his own studio uh, and he uh, coaches little league, which takes up a lot of time. Uh, I, and I didn't want to, you know, so we found Craig. And so I was pl- all of a sudden playing with these two guys in Athens, but I lived in Atlanta. So for the 7 years that we were together I was driving up to Athens a couple times a week for for practice. And That's um, a
0: nice drive. That's a nice like if as long as it's not during rush hour, that's a nice like meditative drive. You're yeah. driving through the woods.
1: Yeah, I was doing it like like it was nothing. Yeah. Um
0: it's a drive to work.
1: It's a drive to work. But yeah, that's um so we had already i had finished a record the first tom collins record i had finished with the previous band members dan and dave and um right when the record was coming out is when i asked kyle if he wanted to play a show so our first handful of shows were supporting a record that they didn't play on Uh uh-huh and then we made the deep cuts record with dave barbie in athens and the next record we made at, at Kyle's studio at basically at our practice base. Um, but the, um, yes. Did I answer the question?
0: Yeah. I, <laughs> I wanted to talk about the Tom Collins a lot. And I think that, um, the Tom Collins are not one of my influences. I feel like, uh, I came along too late for that. However. I think everybody needs to check them out. Like it's a really important band that I feel like came along at, at a time when like the music industry, as we knew it in the nineties had just completely crumbled and MP3s were starting to become a thing and there's not streaming services yet. So you guys came along in a period where there's CDs, not so many records. Yeah. There's MP3s and, uh I bring this up because I hopped on Spotify yesterday there is a the Tom Collins on there it's not us and it's not y'all
1: yeah there's a whole thing going on there um and uh their name is actually uh uh Tom, Tom Collins uh Tom Collins what? but th- for some reason they took the word they took the you know I, I had the Tom Collins records up there and all of a sudden I looked one day, probably after not having looked at it for a couple of years, and I saw that there was another band's yeah. music interspersed with ours. Right, They couldn't sa- sound more wildly different than we do. Um, so Their was, music
0: is loungy.
1: Yes. And I did some research and I was like, well, it's clearly on all these other platforms uh, Amazon Music and wherever it would say a period Tom Collins. So I was like, why did they take the domain that says the? So I, I had some correspondence with Spotify and they were like, well, just show us that you have the Instagram uh, or so any kind of social media. And it turned out they had the Instagram that was the Tom Collins. So <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out that whole conundrum, but meanwhile, the Tom Collins stuff is not on Spotify. All, all the records are on YouTube, or you can order them through my website, totallyintothesound.com. sound dot com.
0: What about what about Bandcamp?
1: Not on Bandcamp.
0: I just want to be able to to tell people like how to get the stuff. So your website yeah. is the best place to get. The band's stuff. Yeah. What's that again?
1: Totally into the sound.com. Awesome.
0: So we have plugged that. I feel like the Tom Collins are one of the most important Atlanta bands last 20 years. Thank you. Um, and thanks in no small part to your, uh, your guitar playing. And we have not mentioned this at all singing. Thank you. Tell me about how the singing stuff started. Uh, the singing stuff started
1: when I, in 1995, um, well, I, yeah, I was in a band called Bell. Now that I think about it, that was probably the first time that I felt that power of a band. Uh, it was me and and Darren Dodd mm. and Sven, Love Pi- Darren. Sven Pippian. Love Sven. I know you know Sven. Yeah. And our friend Jeffrey Williams um, that Jeffrey and Sven had both been in Mary, my hope, and they were kind of taking us under their wing cause we were a few years younger, but they had all this experience. I mean, Mary, my hope had opened for Jane's addiction and love and rockets and they were kind of, you know, a, a real deal.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember being in Montgomery and yeah. listening to like the Fox consumer guide for new rock on Sunday nights a two-hour block where it's not just the same old fucking classic rock. Mary, my hope was on there pretty much every week, and they go, you know, these guys are kind of local because there's nobody from Montgomery, right, right, uh, on on the locals <laughs> section. So they're, they're having to reach out and grab Mary, my hope, who were signed, right? They were a signed yeah. major label band, yeah. One of the last ones of that kind of thing to happen,
1: yeah. Um, during that band, I guess about a year into it, um we had a gig booked and our singer jeffrey he 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 bailed he didn't want to be in the band anymore um and um i was like well i'll sing yeah which i had never done before except in the car singing along to whatever i was like i'm pretty sure i could do this but boy was i wrong (laughs) and i i had to audition basically for my the bandmates that were still left. And they kind of said, nah, (laughs) we don't want to do that. I mean, Jeffrey, he was a singer. He had all, he had that thing down. And I was, he was a front man. So, but after that experience, I was like, you know, I think I could, even though I didn't get the gig in my own band as the singer, I started doing it and I started writing songs and trying to uh come up with melodies and and singing. so
0: so once you had cracked the sealed on the on the idea of like, "Hey, I could be a singer," yeah, then things start to happen, including expecting yourself to sing on on demos of things that you're writing for the band, yeah, yeah, so the that- the problem
1: was that I had all this guitar knowledge and my singing knowledge was just like the size of a pistachio yeah and i had to you know it took years for those to balance out um i'm still balancing it out but it, during tom collins that's one of my one of my regrets of tom collins is that i i just hadn't gotten there yet it was kind of like after tom collins was done where i really started to understand certain things about my voice and singing and things that happened to me on stage, like you know, you hear a, a a show back that you played, and you're like, "Ugh, my voice sounds terrible." I had this just like great uh, memory in my memory banks that said everything was great. Yeah, but now that I'm hearing it back, and some of that is just like a a live mix off the off the board. But I was doing this thing where where I would get nervous. Uh, before a show and I would start singing through my chest yeah, and I would lose the diaphragm. And so my vocals during that time was kind of hit and miss that sometimes I would be, if I was a little more nervous, I would start, you know, I would come from this place where I'd be singing. And I'm like, that's not what, what's going on there? Why am I
0: doing a character voice?
1: And it couldn't, I didn't figure out for a while Uh, probably, you know, once the band was over, really, that's because I'm losing the diaphragm. And it's still something that I have to think about uh, when I go to sing and play, like, make sure, you know, you don't get into that chest voice. So um, that's, you know, one of my regrets is that um, Tom Collins, we had this incredible musical power And we played so loud uh, that you couldn't really even hear the voice. And then when I would hear it back, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm just trying to push so hard to keep up with this Marshall full stack and the SVT and the 28 inch bass drum, 26. Um,
0: So. Well, I think here's the strange thing. I think you can kind of trust your memory. Because a, a board mix of a show is not necessarily what anyone in that room heard. Yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, like we all in the audience hear something kind of similar to what you heard on stage, more or less. So we hear it with the room reverb on it. Yeah. You know, we hear it buried a little bit. And, you know, I've I've been at a show of yours before where like, yeah, this is fucking fantastic. You know, and and yet at the same time, I would imagine that going and listening to a board mix, you'd br- you'd probably hear your vocal and be like, "What? That's not what I did. That's literally not what I did." Because <laughs> nobody heard it that way, including you. Yeah, I I will sometimes tell bandmates like, "I think you can trust your memory on like what how you thought the show went. I think you can trust your memory on that, unless for whatever reason you walk off stage going, "That fucking sucked." In which case, maybe we need to talk.
1: Yeah, well, you, you normally you know that, like you said, as you're walking off stage, you know, okay, yeah, we just shit the bed.
0: Yeah, or we killed it. Yeah. Just a general idea. You're not usually wrong about those really huge impressions, but sometimes you get inside your head enough to where, uh, there's two shows
1: that stick out in my head of Tom Collins where I heard him back and I was like, wow, that's that's it. That's really good. Um And one of them was, um, I was sick for both. What? So one of them, I had a migraine and I was just like, I couldn't deal with anybody. And I thought like, well, drink some whiskey. Maybe that'll make you feel better. Bad idea. Long story short, I get on stage and I was just so over it and in so much pain and my brain was throbbing. I put on the best show uh, and I didn't sing from my chest. Yeah. It all came from naturally from where it was supposed to be. And I was like, Oh, I heard it back afterward. I was like, Oh my God, that's the best, you know, maybe I need to be sick all the time. <laughs> there was another one where I'd gotten food poisoning Oh, and we played, uh, we had a show in Atlanta and in Athens on the same night. Wow. And my amp died. I had a Mesa Boogie Mark IV, and it just crapped out. And I was just like, uh, my bandmates were already mad at me because I double booked us. And they were like, how are we going to pull this off? This is going to be terrible. And um,
0: it's going to be classic. And I was
1: like, well, let's just cancel the whole thing because my amp's dead and I've got food poisoning. And they were like, no. No. We're gonna make you do it now. And they, they pu- pulled me up by my bootstraps. Oh my god. And we went that day and traded my uh Mesa Boogie for a Marshall Super Lead. Wow. And we got to the first show, which was at the tabernacle, um, downstairs. Mm-hmm.
0: Cotton club. Cotton
1: club. They made me turn the amp around. Yeah. And I was feeling terrible. We got through the show and loaded out and started heading towards Athens. And the Athens show was recorded and it's probably the best show we ever did. What yeah. was the Athens show? It was at the 40 Watt. Right on. Uh, a great I think center. we were playing with Hayride. Um, that would make sense. I've been looking for that. I've got a bootleg of that. I've been looking for it because I was like, I, I want to hear that that one Tom Collins show again. So... The two that I remember the, as being the best were the ones where I was just so over it and didn't care at all to the point like, let's just cancel everything that I you know
0: was able to get around all the pre-show nerves and, yeah. and just do it. The nerves component of it is completely out. Do you feel like as a, uh, I go on stage with a migraine kind of regularly? Yeah. And there's a thing that I worry about, which is having a goddamn stroke on stage because of singing. feels like my head's going to explode if I sing wrong. If I'm singing from my throat or if I'm singing from my chest, if I don't have the diaphragm involved enough, it hurts real, real bad to sing. Yeah. However, if you just kind of back off and let it happen from the diaphragm, it doesn't hurt your head so much. What a what a weird thing to stumble across. Yeah. Thanks migraines. Oh god.
1: Ugh. Oh yeah, if you if you get migraines and you play shows regularly, you're basically going to get one every time you play a show cuz you're going to be, you know, you're you're tense. Yep. Nerves play uh, into that too. You know, I was a smoker. Uh so uh the more nervous I got, the more I smoked and the more chance I would Half of getting a migraine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I I have started, have had a uh, little of both, but mostly in the past, started kind of chasing different ways of eradicating those migraines. And eventually you start chasing the eradication of the migraines before they happen. Yeah. So it might be like, huh, I took mushrooms before that last show and my <laughs> migraine completely cleared up. I'm going to start taking mushrooms at every show. And then my doctor says, if you do that, you'll start getting a migraine every time you take mushrooms. And I was like, nah, yeah. Yeah. Eventually that does, that association does start to happen. makes sense. And then you can't use hallucinogens to get rid of migraines anymore, which sucks. And then it's like this prescription. Nope. This prescription. Nope. What about just taking care of yourself? I know, right? And... And trying to meditate and try to just, like, let all of that migraine-inducing energy just die down before going on stage. Yeah. I, I don't have conventional stage fright. I don't have, like, the conventional pre-show nerves. I've kind of pinpointed, and this happened when I played with Wayne at 529 a few years ago, that I genuinely thought the show was not going to ever happen, that something would happen and the show would get canceled before we could go on stage. Right. And then in the days leading up to it, this feeling starts growing. And then the last two hours before we go on stage, I'm like, I just want to die. You know (laughs) why? Because every, every 60 second interval between me and, And standing on that stage, I want that to just go away. I just want to be on the stage already. If I could just be there now, that's what I want. But like this waiting for it to happen and feeling like somebody's going to die before it can happen, you know, whether it's me or somebody else or the show's going to get canceled or God's just going to like take the roof off of the venue and say, I was just kidding about the whole thing. You don't deserve this at all. (laughs) Yeah. Like I, I have that kind of anxiety before a show that either it's not going to happen or that there will be some sort of problem that will crop up the very second I walk on stage, like a string breaking, you know, at the very start of the first song, something that I didn't foresee, something that I could have prevented. Those are all of the things that I'm concerned about. Exactly. It's 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 that's
1: like taking a a plane, you know. Get yes. You, you got a flight scheduled, and you're like, "Well, okay, I gotta be there at this time." Uh, Where's you know? I've got this in this pocket. I'm gonna have to take my belt off. You know. Hope that all works out. Mm-hmm. Uh, they changed the gate. You know. Yeah. So I have the same kind of pre-show nerves uh, every time I go to take a a plane flight somewhere, and I have to remind myself like. Well, once you get on the plane, you don't have to sing a song.
0: You'll yeah. just be able to sit there. Yeah. <laughs> so how did how did we go from the Tom Collins to Butch Walker? Um. So Tom Collins broke up in um,
1: two thousand five. It was like uh, we we put out our last record, Daylight Tonight, and we were you know, very much at each other's throats um and we had a deal in place uh that was keeping us together ooh and the deal fell through yeah you know it's as they always do at the 11th hour right before we were about to get the money for a van and we had some things that were you know looking kind of optimistic even though we had a very pessimistic view of everything which was kind of sunk us in the end self-fulfilling we were hamstrung with with doubt from the get-go um but when that deal fell through it was just kind of like this is done so we uh we parted ways and there was a year there where i was working on cave talk And um, wasn't playing out. Well, I guess I I was playing with Tenement Halls. I started playing bass with uh, Atlanta Band Tenement Halls. And um, somewhere in there, I had known Butch, and he had mixed our last record, the last Tom Collins record. Um, And the mixes... The, uh, Kyle the drummer and Tom Collins he's an engineer so he really wanted to th- that album kind of became his baby and so we kind of like we got done with the mixes with Butch and we didn't like them uh, but Tom, Kyle really wanted to mix the the record himself mm, got it um, and as I had to be the guy that went and told Butch that which was a terrible thing because Butch is just like
0: such a good friend of mine and he was helping us and lots of good up energy as yes. opposed to what you're dealing with in the band at the time which is mostly like down kind of more pessimistic energy so you're having to go from like a cold pool to a hot jacuzzi here vibe wise exactly so, so what do you and when say? we brought those two factions together we recorded a song with butch
1: and he was just like what's up with your guys they're like they look like they're really depressed. We're here to do this super fun thing, and I was
0: like, "Yeah, I, uh, welcome to yeah. my nightmare." But um, so which it's not the guy's fault. It's the it's the culture of and the it's it's everybody together. Sure,
1: sure. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Just try to be <laughs> diplomatic here <through laughs> because I know how it is.
1: I'm doing a dance. Yeah, Dan- dancing around a few different a few different things right here. But um so at that point once Tom Collins was done, uh my friend Darren, uh Darren Dodd, he was Butch's drummer and they ended up needing a guitar player for a a run that they were doing. It was like a 10 or 12 day run just up the East Coast and they were like, well, let, you know, let's so Darren kind of went to bat for me with Butch like, I know he he uh turned you know didn't use your mixes but maybe he'll work out
0: right for this so that could be kind of disappointing but this guy is not disappointing
1: right and um we plugged it in and and with that tour that 10-day tour that we had was awesome and um butch and i's friendship you know had always kind of been like i would see him here and i'd see him there we'd hang out once a year and after we got to hang out for a couple weeks in a row and be in a band together, it was just like, Oh man, this is such a cool thing. I get to just play guitar and I've got like one of the best front men in the world. And it was really, it was nice to take a break from singing at that point and just watch some other guy go yeah. from the stage. And um, it just kind of blossomed from, from there. I played with him
0: for like four years black widows, right? Yeah. Were you were you playing B-bender stuff on that first tour?
1: I was. In fact, I played on one of Butch's earlier albums called Letters before I was in the band uh on a song called Race Cars and Gar- Goth Rock and I played B-bender on that song. So, um I had already Yeah, I I'd, I'd already been playing B-bender and then during that time where I joined the band, he was doing a song that had some pedal steel in it that we ended up doing on Ellen, and I was able to do the pedal steel parts on the on the B-Bender.
0: Super useful.
1: Very useful. Yeah.
0: It's not only great for approximating, like, pedal steel stuff, but, like, it's its own vibe, too. Yeah. It's it's just got its own thing going on. Um, and that's that's one thing that, like... I mean, it can kind of help you to stand out like you're already a great guitar player, but then uh, let's add this other thing to the mix. You know, here's another tool. And I don't I don't know why I love it so much, but there's like this extra level of expression that comes from it. I feel like you've added a ton to a bunch of his songs with it. Thank you. Just wanted to mention that. How did you start playing B-Bender? Just curious. Um,
1: it was because uh, of Kyle Spence. He was uh, Kyle and Craig during the Tom Collins era, early on, probably 99 or 2000. They were driving to Atlanta uh, for a gig and they stopped at Galaxy Music mm-hmm. and there was a B-Bender there and Kyle bought it uh, and called me and said, hey, you bought a guitar today. <laughs>
0: And I was like, wow, shit, what did I buy? (laughs) He was like a B bender. So, so that just for folks who are not guitarists who aren't familiar with what a B bender is, uh, it can help your guitar to, it's like a whammy bar for one string that only bends upward and either a half step or whole step increment. Is that right?
1: Uh, it can go a step and a half, but it usually everyone uses it at, at a whole step. Yeah. I've never really heard anyone use it other than a, a whole step. I'm sure there's somebody that's out there doing it for a half step. So we've, we've
0: got Clarence White, right? Yeah. Um, and Jimmy Page. Yes. And uh, both of these dudes are playing this by simply like it's hooked up to the guitar strap and you push the guitar down. Yeah. And it it pulls a lever on a mechanism that bends the string without you doing anything with your fingers. Correct. So much like a, a pedal steel, there's like some funky mechanics about how this works and it's not immediately intuitive. Oh yeah. But no. Once you got it, you got it. Yeah. It's um... was, it, was it a telecaster? Because that's what they're normally on.
1: Yeah. It's a telecaster. Um, it took a minute. To get used to it. But I knew like uh, there were some Zeppelin songs like 10 years gone where uh, when the live version, he would use the B bender and I'd be like, how is he bending that note so perfectly during a chord? Right. It was something that you weren't able, you weren't supposed to be able to do. And
0: I mean, we can all do that on a G, but a B is kind of out of the question. Yes. Like we're asking our pinky to bend something a whole step and that's just not. Yeah. Not super realistic. And
1: to bend it perfectly to pitch, leave it there, and then come back perfectly. Yeah. You know, it's just basically impossible for your finger, your fingers to do. So I had a few templates of songs that I knew they were B-Bender on that I just kind of learned those songs, and that got me off and running.
0: Does that pretty much... So, like... What do you feel like you learned from from watching Butch? What did you feel like you learned from your experience with, with him overall? Oh man, so much. You' probably leveled up a few times while you were doing that stuff. What does that mean? Le- just leveled up <laughs> as a performer, guitarist, frontman, even though that's not what you're doing, just because you're around this different atmosphere and can learn th- like anytime when you're on the road. Yeah. That's an opportunity to learn a whole bunch of shit, whether oh, yeah. you realize it or not. So, uh, how do you feel like you kind of grew during that time? Um, yeah, I was very
1: in the first couple tours. Uh, I was very conscious of of hey, look at me, look at all these things I can do. Yeah, you know, why is everyone you know watch me for a second? <laughs> but I've got the spotlight. Yeah, when you're. Dealing, playing with a guy that commands so much attention as he does, and nobody really can take uh, their eyes off of him, it took a second for me to realize, like, Fran, you don't want anyone looking at you. <laughs> They're looking at the guy that's he's, his
0: name's on the marquee. That's, nobody knows who you are. That's you exactly know? how I think about it. And I've had people kind of tell me I was wrong. <laughs> But, yeah, that's how I feel that like, if you pay a ticket to see this guy, you're there to see this guy, yeah, right. um, so the the look at me aspect of doing a guitar solo, two hands on the fretboard, yeah, kind of comes down a little bit, right? Yeah, well, he was he
1: gave me a long leash, and he was very giving. I mean, like, uh, I used to get teased by the other bandmates because on the first couple tours, it'd be like, during every song, after a solo, he would go, Frank Capitanelli, everybody on the stage, right?
0: <laughs> and you're, uh, you're Bob Mayo on keyboards, Bob Mayo, after those tours. Right. So my
1: the other guys in the band were like, you get introduced on every song. Yeah. So um, Butch was very generous and, you know, with that stuff on stage and then eventually it bled over into the studio where i was you know working on songs with him and co-writing songs for the record i ended up moving back out to la um and was there for a couple years uh and doing session work with him in between black widows stuff i mean i basically i moved out there for for the black widows but uh it was very convenient that he was working with so and so on this date and the next day we had Jimmy Cliff was coming in and uh, so I got to do a lot of session work with him.
0: And he's just a fantastic producer.
1: Yeah, he's 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 just a great producer. So you're doing great...
0: session stuff on things that he's producing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like session work is inherently a growing experience.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. You definitely, um, you know, when I'm sitting around recording by myself, you can, okay, I'm I've got this guitar part. It's almost there. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll work on it for a couple of days, shut everything down. Let's just, and you just don't have that luxury. It's just whatever you got right then You know, make it the best you can, and maybe we can patch some things together and in Pro Tools. But
0: sometimes you're playing outside of your comfort zone in a session, though. Oh, yeah. And you have to just figure out how to make it work. And like you're asking yourself, like, okay, so what does the song actually need, you know, versus what I'm stressing out about?
1: Uh, You know, I had the, um, since my uncle was a session musician, and I, so so familiar with his repertoire and how minimal he played. I always had that in the back of my mind to play minimally. And I could barely ever do it. I was always just like, had to like throw in something. um, And some of it would stick and some of it wouldn't, but I was always trying to kind of model what, what he did when I was in those. So I
0: know you just ran through all of that the other day but what would be some example, like, not necessarily discography, but, like, some examples of, like, a very minimal part? The kind of thing that he would come up with. Like, so what are you thinking about when you're like, okay, so what would my uncle do right here?
1: Yeah. um, But Hey 19 is a pretty spot-on example of what he did, which was just kind of, like, fiddle around in between vocal lines and do some different,
0: uh, chord voicings. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be the most virtuosic shit in the world to like hold your attention in a good way.
1: Right. Yeah. He just kind of, he was a great blank filler.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What are you working on now? Aside from totally into the sound. Um, you know, I've just been making the videos on,
1: on YouTube, which actually takes up quite a bit of time yeah. and, and
0: concentration. It seems like you have so much fun editing those videos.
1: I do. I do. And they take way longer than I anticipate, but there's kind of, I've noticed this curve uh, in the last year where it was like, you know, finish a video and I feel extremely relieved and I have like. Uh, Three days in bed watching TV, trying to think of the next idea.
0: As you like decompress and recharge. And I'm like, how am I going to do this again? I just put it, laid it all on the line
1: for this lab. I don't have any ideas. Um, You clearly don't want it to just be filler. I don't want it to be (laughs) blank filler. But yeah, um, it's time consuming and, and... um i love doing it but i have a hard time compartmentalizing all right i'm gonna work on this video and then i'm gonna work on a song of my own or i'm gonna you know start recording a song um i am um you know i'm working on a video and and that's all i can really think about yeah it's kind of like the, you know we were talking about before we started recording. You're going to take a trip and you're like, oh, I'm going to need my suntan lotion. I got this thing over here. Throw all this stuff on the ground and and leave the, all these empty LaCroix cans over here. Uh gotta get to this video, you know, get to Hawaii. The
0: task is paramount.
1: And everything, I let everything go, you know, I haven't brushed my teeth for a few days. Just kidding. <laughs> but um, and then the whole process starts over and um So I guess what I'm saying is it's hard for me. Let's last week when I played with Anna and I had to do a video in between, it's really hard for me to compartmentalize and like, okay, I'm doing the show now, you know, forget about the video for a second. Um, It's just all gets jammed up 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 there.
0: Well, you know, one thing that strikes me about your podcast And I think it's I think it's something that's really important that's getting lost because of uh, in big capital letters, quotation marks around it, the algorithm. Hmm. So the algorithm, which uh, somebody was telling me the other day, just replace it with the viewers. And I don't know about that. Um, But so the algorithm has determined that people are much more likely to interact with shit that's extremely negative. Yeah. Like uh, just, you know, shitting all over something or this is extremely bad or here's why I hate this. And people get really mad when you talk about something that they love and you say that you hate it. Yeah. And so that's going to really drive up interaction. Or let's say that, you know, somebody wants to talk shit about their ex and that really drives up interaction on their page. But you're channel is extremely positive your channel is like a a celebration of what you love about music which believe it or not that's why I started a band and that's why I wanted to start this podcast is you know I kind of missed during the pandemic having interesting conversations with musicians that I loved backstage and I kind of felt like you know, I don't know if there's anything to this or if anybody could learn something from it. I hope so. Or or if they could like maybe gain enough confidence from a conversation like what we're having to then go, fuck it. I'm going to go get on stage. You know, like I'm going to take the five steps that it takes to go from playing in my bedroom to playing with people to playing on stage or simply getting up at a karaoke night or whatever. But that kind of like, you don't inspire people to do that by talking shit about stuff. And you don't inspire people to uh, create by having your your work be negative, you know? Yeah. Or let's say you want to start a zine here in Atlanta where all of your record reviews are slagging the local bands, you know? That doesn't actually do anything for the scene. It's just, you know, you think you're being funny, but you're not actually helping things. Yeah. So, I mean, kudos to you for, for having... Uh, a positive creation that's then supposed to go out and inspire you know more people to do the same in this day and age uh and that it's it's actually like snowballing you know people do like the positive stuff I feel like uh yeah
1: I mean I've done a couple videos where it was like uh all right let's see uh, you know the Rolling Stone did the top 200 singers and they grossly left out, you know, some of the best singers of all time. They probably did that on purpose right. for the reason that you're mentioning. Yeah. And uh, so um, I was like, all right, I could probably knock this video out in a day. And it was a huge success compared, you know, for me. Um, uh was getting like, you know, a few thousand hits in a day because people... Wanted to chime in, yeah. Why did they leave off Celine Dion? Yeah, I can't believe that. Oh, the nerve. So, but the negative negative stuff, it just affects me
0: later. I can't really. I mean, I'm sure I talk plenty of shit. Same. I mean, that's you know. That's why I wanted to record myself saying something positive. <laughs>
1: But I just, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to talk shit about people uh, openly, and because some people are okay with that, they feel fine. It doesn't affect me at all. I'm just gonna uh, said what I feel about that person. But I, it keeps me up
0: at night. Man, why did I say that to so and so? That was wrong. I I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm bringing all this negative energy back on myself. I shouldn't be doing that. Come on, (laughs) Fran. So it's kind of trial and error. Here's what I like. This whole thing with the videos, has just been total trial and error.
1: And and, um, you can see like at the very beginning, it's kind of like you're dating someone, you know? At the beginning, you're like, hey, I'm in a good mood. You wanna go over to the bowling alley? (laughs) And as you get further into it, you're like, all right, everybody. (laughs) We're going over to the bowling alley. (laughs) I know you like it there. Uh, and so I try to get back to that same energy. Uh, but you know, to, we were talking about depression before, uh, I think before we started recording, yeah. but uh, I've been having some serious depression, and it's hard to say, Let's go over to the bowling alley yeah. when you're not You feeling like, Do uh, you want to even get out of bed?
0: No, yeah, it is way easier to be just kind of genuine and a lot of the time before i right after i hit record i will say depression's bad today yeah and we're just going to roll with it you know i hope it doesn't weird you out but this is what we're doing i haven't gotten to that point where i've been open about it i just um i'm a, i'm a little different from most people i don't i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't suggest that for you
1: yeah but i figure you know the people that are going to like me i don't know you know it's like you see all these other guys on YouTube and they're like, "Hey everybody." No. And I'm like, "Please God, no. Don't let that be me." Yeah. Ever. And you do end up having to conform to some of the rituals that you look at at the beginning and like like putting my face on the thumbnail with mm-hmm. the weird like, "Huh, I'm curious about this. Don't
0: forget to like and subscribe."
1: Uh, and you got to say that every time. I'm just like, so I'm just like, well, hopefully enough of your genuine self will come through and people will be like, all right, this guy, you know, he doesn't need all that cheery stuff. Yeah. He's just who he is. And uh, maybe I'll like his video this week or maybe it's on a topic I don't care about. and Who knows? Every one I do, I'm just like, I don't know how I'm going to do another one. What am I doing? But I've been consistently doing them now for a year and a half. I have well over 100 and I'm just like, oh my
0: God, how did I even do that? A hundred videos. Well, you're t- you doing what we're doing. You're talking about music. Yeah. You're finding new things to appreciate, to talk about, and shine a light on. As Todd Rundgren said, there's always more. Yeah. Yeah. Fran, thank you so much for coming over. Oh, no, and, thank you. And uh, and recording with me. Um, I uh, I hope that that we're going to help to get somebody up on stage and uh and to believe in themselves a little bit more after hearing the stuff that we've been through yeah and um gosh i'm looking forward to your next video man thanks man totally into the sound youtube anywhere else we can find you
1: i'm in all the spots i'm on instagram and whatever i don't know i don't know all right who
0: knows thank you fran (laughs) thank you adam We've been talking to Fran Capitanelli. Find him on YouTube at Totally Into The Sound. Go check out his old band, Please Do, at the Tom Collins at totallyintothesound.com. You can find the Instagram of this podcast at Power and Volume. Be sure to check out my band, The Pinks, with an X, at thepinksrock.com. And my book club podcast with Amber at checking.in.podcast on Instagram. See y'all next time.